In this segment, I want to talk a little bit about how we build our home, both spiritually and how we build our home in terms of the church. Now, we're not talking theology here because that's really big and broad. What we're talking about is just your own life and your, your outlook on life and then your outlook on the church and how your outlook on the church really ends up becoming the culture of the church that you pastor. And, you know, we're talking here about how do we drive multiplication deep into the culture of a church, either an existing church or a church that we're about to plant. And so, you know, I kind of kicked off on something here. It's not really, uh, I'm not sure, theologically accurate. It's Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, that says, Wisdom has built and furnished her home. It's supported by seven hewn or seven crafted pillars. Now, uh, we're going to get into more than seven pillars today, but I want you to think about your, your life is as your spiritual home has several pillars that, that you have gleaned from the scripture. You built your life on these, these scriptures. I'm going to talk to you about mine in just a moment. And then we're going to talk about your church. And I want you to really be thinking about your church and whether the pillars that you've built on lend themselves to multiplication or whether they do not. Because that's really going to set the stage for where we want to go with this thing because we're really talking here about helping our churches come to becoming a, a disciple-making machine, a church multiplication machine, if you would, that we would actually live out the Great Commission in the churches that we lead. And so I want to just get started with kind of my personal home, my, my spiritual home. Now, again, this isn't my theology of everything. Uh, it's not my whole worldview, but it is enough of my worldview that these are the scriptures that have kind of taken over my life. And uh, the first is something I memorized when I was a kid. I got to go to youth camp for free if I memorized 70-some-odd scriptures from the Bible. And so uh, the, the one that stuck out in those days was Isaiah 53, 6. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And basically the value that I get out of that is that sin is doing your own thing rather than doing God's thing. And then... Romans chapter 1 comes into play, and, and uh, the value that I get out of Romans 1 is that there is a creator, and that he has made this offer of salvation, and that it works, and that mankind, in turning their back on that offer, has screwed up the world that we live in. And so, I, a, a value that this is how I identify sin, and how I work in my own life, it turns into surrender for me. Uh, a value looking at the culture that's all messed up turns into surrender for me. Romans chapter 8, a value that I get out of that is that if God is on my side, and he is because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, then who can stand against me? And so I'm going to stand, and I'm going to stand strong. I've built my life on these things. Psalm 37, the whole chapter. I wish I could take time. I could talk for two hours about Psalm 37. I probably read that chapter of the Bible at least three times every week. When I was 14 years old, a guy named John Myers goes driving down the street on a Sunday afternoon past our church in a 1952 MGTD. Now, if you're old enough, uh, it's a little British sports car that kind of looks like a Model A Ford. It's got the high fenders and wire wheels and all of that. And I, oh man, I just prayed to God, please let me one day own that car. And 
about that time, I was starting to get into the Bible pretty good. We had a youth pastor that was getting us into the scripture. I ran into Psalm 37, and verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, I read that, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the 1952 MGTD of your heart. And this is probably about 1960 when this is going on, 1959. Well, here's what happened. I didn't know it, but I'd been talking story with my friends about that car and how I wanted it and how I was praying for it. That guy, John, bought a new car, and he saved that car in his mother's garage till I got old enough that I can buy it. I ended up with that car. Well, I kind of fell in love with Psalm 37, and the larger thing is about don't fret because of evil people because they're not going to get their way. God's going to take care of you. And at the very end, it says that the Lord protects those who take refuge in him, that find him as their fortress. And so the value that I really got out of this is not that just that God will meet my needs and answer my prayers and all that, but that when, when people come against me, and they have over the life of being a pastor for many years, um, don't worry about it because it's not my problem. It's God's problem. Another scripture, there was a guy that I'm not even sure how to take him. He was an evangelist and he'd memorized a lot of the Bible and he'd come around to the churches that I was in anyway. And and uh, you'd line up at the end of a, a church service and he would kind of uh, prophetically pronounce a scripture verse over you. Well, when I got there, by this time, I'm probably 17 years old and really thinking about God and my life and how am I going to get things together. And, and he quoted to me 2 Chronicles 31, 21, that talks about Hezekiah the king. And it says that every work he began in the service of the house of God, he did it with all of his heart and he prospered. I took that to mean that if I serve God with my whole heart, well, he's going to make me prosper. Everything's going to work out very well for me and I don't have to worry about it. And that links to the next two scriptures that I'm going to get kind of one value out of. And that's Matthew chapter 6, 33 and 34. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And by the way, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough problems of its own. And then right around the time that I was really wallowing in that scripture, probably over some lost girlfriend or something, I found 1 Peter 5, 7. It says, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. And so again, I, I, I'm getting out of this that if I'm walking with the Lord, if I'm trying to seek his things, I don't have to worry about all this other stuff going on. And then somewhere along the line, I found Malachi chapter 3. And, you know, I hear today that people tithe about 3% to Christian churches. Well, I don't. I tithe 10%. And to my knowledge, I've tithed a dime out of every dollar that I ever got when I was a little kid, five years old. I was getting 10 cents a week, a dime or an allowance. And, you know, with inflation, that would be about a buck and a half today. But my father stopped as we accepted the Lord in our family. My father stopped giving me a dime and started to give me a nickel and five pennies so that I could put a penny in the offering at church. That lesson stuck. And, you know, God is blessed financially, investment wise. A lot of crazy things have happened in my life that have been really good. And I link it back to that scripture. So these are the pillars that I have built my my house on spiritually. Uh, the last of them is in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. I see it where it starts to talk about, you know, submit to the Lord in worship, uh, submit to one another in love. It gets into husbands and wives and how we behave toward each other, parents and children, how we behave. 
employer-employee, and then it ends up in ministry, and then it tops off ministry with spiritual warfare. And so I see that there's a priority list for how I should live my life. God is more important than my family, or my family is more important than my work. And if I get all these things right, then I get to be in the ministry and I get to be effective. And I should expect that I'm in a spiritual warfare. And when you're in a warfare and you get caught in, in the cross traffic, uh, once in a while, you're going to probably get shot at. And so um, these are the scriptures on which I've built my house. Now comes the things that I want to challenge you with. And, and this is how we build our, our ecclesial house. And I'm using the word ecclesial on purpose because as soon as we get to talking about microchurch, everybody starts talking about ecclesial minimums. And not like, you know, what's the least we can get by with here? But what does it take before we would actually call it a church? You know, especially a microchurch. Is it two people who get together in Jesus' name? I've heard people, you know, for no reason say, well, that's just not enough people. Well, uh, or is there an elder body? Well, how do you have an elder body when, you know, you got five people in the church? Um, we have an elder body that backs you when we send you out. So there's these, these issues. But well, I want to make really clear. I'm not talking to you about my theology of the church. It's much broader than what we're talking about right now. And I'm not talking to you about ecclesial minimums. And nor am I in Proverbs chapter um, 9 talking about the, the seven pillars of the church because I got about a dozen of them here. But these are the scriptures that have I've absorbed in my life. And these are the scriptures that I, as the lead pastor, have somehow infused into the culture of our church. In other words, this is that value set. This is what I've taught our people. These are the shared values around which we have built our church. And as I'm going through these, I want you to be thinking, because I'm going to ask you to do this on your own, about which of these values do or do not support church multiplication and disciples making disciples. Now, as we get into this, not every scripture that undergirds your ministry needs to support church multiplication, but some of them do. And if we're talking about modifying a church culture and beginning to put the focus on multiplication, we're going to have to teach our people some things. We're going to have to come together around shared values. And like we talked about when we were together in the live group, shared values only become shared values as somebody stands up as a leader and shares them with other people to the point that they are willing to share them with each other. So as we get into my ecclesial home, my church culture, that culture that's really my thoughts and my heart that I've imposed on other people over the years, uh, I'm just going to give you what turns out to be about a dozen scriptures. And the first one is uh, Matthew chapter 28, 18, actually 17 to 20. In verse 17, by the way, Jesus is talking to the 12 or the 11, and some of them still doubted after the resurrection, after eating food with them, the whole thing. They still got their doubts. But these doubtful people are the ones that he commissions to go out and to make disciples of all the nations. So here, here's what I get out of it. He accepts doubters. He commissions us all to make disciples of all the nations. And then he says, all authority is given me. I'm telling you to teach them to obey my commandments. And I boil it down to three commandments. Love God, love your neighbor, and make disciples teaching them to love God, love their neighbor, and make disciples teaching them to 
and it goes on and on and on cycles. And I don't think we ever get done with that job. And what I do also think is I'm making value judgments. I think that a lot of churches really fail in this whole thing. You know, I actually talked to the wife of, of a pastor of a, that you all know his name, huge church and nationally known, a well-known author. And, and somebody asked this woman about her spiritual grandchildren. And she goes, grandchildren, what do you want to know the names of my grandchildren? She didn't get it. This person had to clarify. It was a really young woman asked her the question. She said, no, no, I mean the disciples of your disciples. And she says, oh, discipleship, disciple making. Well, you know, my husband's a really great Bible teacher. We just sort of leave that stuff to other people. We can't leave that to other people. To me, this is a very, very high value. And it's one that I have to build into the life of my congregation that we are all called to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. The second scripture that I've built my house on is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that says that we should go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And I've had to personalize that and go, well, what exactly is my Jerusalem? What is my Judea? What is my Samaria? And what part of the ends of the earth is the church that I pastor responsible for? This has helped me to expand my vision, but it's also helped me to narrow my vision and focus on certain parts of the world and go, this is my turf, and, and I have to stand before Jesus one day over this, but I don't have to wear the burden of all the rest of it. Another scripture is John chapter 15, verse 16, where Jesus says that it's the Father's will that we bear fruit and that our fruit will remain. And because of that, the Father's going to give us whatever it is that we need. So I come out of there um, as a leader of a church, going, this church is to bear fruit. And it's to bear fruit long after I'm gone. And by the way, Jesus is going to give us whatever we need to do to get the job done. And so there's this expectation that good things are going to come to us. You know, when I moved to Hawaii, it was against the law to meet in public school. That law got changed. Uh, we got a principal in the first second school we were in who informed me, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm a Christian who doesn't go to church. I believe in separation of church and state. I think you're violating it by being in my school. This is nothing personal. I'm just going to do everything I can to get you out of here. I just want you to know that. And so I was still young enough to be a little easily intimidated, but I got together all the courage I had. And I go, well, just so you know, I understand that the Reagan administration has made some big strides toward uh, equality in the way that we treat people in the use of public buildings and that the church has a right to be here. And the deal is this, and don't take this personally because it's not personal. It's just what I have to do to survive. I got three really young, hot-headed attorneys in my church, and they're looking to get in a fight over this particular issue. And so here's my deal. We're going to sue the state of Hawaii. We're going to sue the school district, and we're going to sue you personally. And again, it's not a personal thing. It's just something that I have to do to survive. Well, within two months, something happened, and the law changed in that these school principals could retire early and get a buyout. He did, and we got a principal that loved us, and it just kind of underscored that scripture to me that God's going to take care of you. You know, we had some guy that I thought was a screwball come to our church and tell us, you know, God sent me here. I go to First Baptist in Honolulu, but God sent me on assignment here. I'm going to attend this church until I find you guys a place for a home. We were in a public school for 16 years. 
Well, about halfway through, he comes to the office one day, puts a real estate listing on my desk. We ended up with the property. It was actually a 54 year, year lease. But in all the time that we were in Hawaii, only one other church got to purchase a campus for their home uh, that was large and significant. There were smaller ones, but we got 12 acres. And uh, it was the largest piece of property that was given to a church in the 35 years that I lived in Hawaii. Jesus promises that he wants us to bear fruit. <clears throat> I think we have to cooperate and want to bear fruit. But if we do, the fruit is going to remain and he's going to give us everything that we need. Along with this, <clears throat> I think a lot about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. This is one that I would quote every week in church if I could find a way to do it. And it just says that the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, all of us folks exist to equip the rest of the people to do the work of the ministry. And so I see the purpose of the church as an equipping center, not an entertainment center, not a spiritual uplift, but an equipping center so we can go out into the world and do the work of the ministry. And then that's church purpose. I get church architecture out of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And this is another one that I would try to bring up somehow every week for all those years, you know, 35 years in Hawaii, 12 years in, in Hermosa Beach. I, 80% of the time, these two scriptures would leak into a message or into announcements or into something somewhere. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I see apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, praise, giving generously, and having favor with the neighbors, and that that's what we're supposed to be doing as a church. And that begins to shape how we use or design the buildings that we're going to meet in, how we use or do not use houses or auto shops or whatever else uh, we're going to use for our church facility. And so I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. Luke chapter 10 is another pillar that we're supposed to look for the person of peace. I'm not into event evangelism. I'm into relational evangelism because of Luke chapter 10. I want to find that person of peace. I want to find the woman at the well in Samaria and begin to do business with her because I know that she's got access to a lot of other people. This also really impacts the way that we're starting to think about using microchurches because we have people in our churches that are connected with populations of people who don't want anything to do with our churches. And if we can get them and train them and equip them, that person of peace is going to reach their own. And this really works for me. First Corinthians chapter uh, 14, verse 26 says, when you come together, each has a, a song, a hymn, a teaching, a prophecy. You know, in, in other words, everybody plays. There's a role for everybody in the church and that we should be Again, devising the way that church happens, building our ecclesial home in ways where people can actually not necessarily sit in rows and watch somebody, but engage each other and share something with one another. We're there to equip them to do ministry. And if we don't make the venues for ministry to happen, well, then it's not going to. Romans 15, 14 is another one. It says in Romans 15, Paul's writing to a church he's never visited. And he goes, I'm convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of all goodness. You have all knowledge and you're capable of teaching one another. Well, how, what, what did he mean they have all knowledge? Well, they had the scriptures, what scriptures there were at that time. 
What he means they're full of all goodness. We can only be full of goodness if we have the Holy Spirit in our life because we are washed in the blood of Jesus. This is a work of the Spirit. This isn't a work of, of, of human knowledge and ability. And so when he says that you you're capable of teaching and instructing one another, what he's really saying, what I get out of it is, ordinary people who are full of the Holy Spirit have what it takes to get the job of ministry done and they can extend the ministry beyond the four walls of our building, which takes me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, you know, the things that you have seen and heard and learned from me pass on to faithful men who are able to pass it on to others also. And so to me, again, I'm thinking the legacy of our church, the legacy of my life is not in my first generation disciples. It's in the fourth generation of disciples. And so that's a value that I've put on the church and the way that we do church. If we're not doing it to the fourth generation, then I think we have a problem. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse one says, follow me as I follow Christ. I've always interpreted that to mean that people follow other people into Christ. Again, we don't do event evangelism. We do friendship evangelism. I'm here to equip you so you can get to your neighbor, so you can get to your friend. When we went to Honolulu, what we did was we ran a bunch of radio ads and uh, I was on the radio we, that was a contrived thing just so we could run the ads actually and then we kept doing it for the next 30 years but what we did was we went looking for people who were you know the the radio ad went like this are you a recently divorced person because churches don't do well with divorces are you a single parent because that's a difficulty uh, or are, is there some other reason you've been made to feel uncomfortable in a Christian church? Now, that means maybe you're kind of a hard-headed idiot that people can't get along with, and that's made you feel uncomfortable in a Christian church. So what do we do? We went looking for the people that already knew the Lord that the other churches weren't so interested in because we thought we could start with them as a base and we could teach them to do the follow me as I follow Christ thing. Sometimes it meant there had to be a little discipline, but discipline is love. And we we're able to kind of shape the church out of that and a church that pretty much changed the world. And pretty excited about that one. And then there is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where elders, pastors, people like you and me, are told that we're supposed to feed the flock of God, but we're also told don't lord it over them. And so the value that I got out of that is that I shouldn't be heavy-handed for one thing, but also I push it a little further perhaps than I should, but that, that ministry should come ground up rather than top down. And I don't want to be an overbearing leader. I want to be a supportive leader, um, a, a servant of all, if you would. And then lastly, in John uh, chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, coupled with Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Chuck Smith taught me, Jesus told Peter, it's your job to feed the sheep. He also told Peter, it's my job to build the church. And so I've just come, one of the big values that I have is if I adequately teach the people the word of God in a way that they can readily understand it and repeat it. This is why I go verse by verse and chapter by chapter. I want to make it fun. I want to make it funny. But I want them to not be Ralph Moore when I was the kid in high school going to school, wanting to share the Lord with my friends. And I could remember two out of three points from the pastor the day before. And so I would just zip my lip and not say anything because I couldn't say it right. And so I, I ran into a class in the Bible college where this guy had a way of going deep, but going simple. 
And I figured if I can go deep and go simple and keep it funny, then I'm going to give these people access where all they got to do is flip through their Bible because they know where it is and they can share what it is. And so these are the values. These are the pillars under which I have assembled a church culture. Now, did I set out in the way that we're doing this right now in this, this talk to, I'm going to assemble a church culture? No, I wish I had, but nobody ever got to me about that. All I'm saying is, these are the things that I've taken to heart. Again, they're not theology, uh, at least not an expansive theology. They're not an ecclesial minimum. They're just the stuff that have integrated into my life. And then because I am a teacher, I've integrated into the life of the congregation. These are the shared values that undergird something that we call Hope Chapel Churches. And so along with this little talk that I've done here today, what I would really like for you to do is to sit down and, and make a list of at least seven pillars underneath your ecclesial home. And, uh, and then state the values that come out of each scripture. And then there's a column in the thing that I'm attaching to this on uh, that's a download that you would uh, just write the word M if it contributes to multiplication. If it doesn't contribute to multiplication, just don't put anything. It's not like something bad. It's just that you've used a scripture to build on that doesn't contribute to multiplication. And so we're going to try to see how we can begin to tilt in the future, a little bit more toward multiplication because that's what we're all about.